Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well Ed, I don't know whether you've heard, but I believe there are some um, redacted in this house, some redacted Mm. in this house, there's redacted in this house. Yes, absolutely. We obviously weren't able to record last week because I had to work unexpectedly. And I, I, I regret that because, you know, this is always it's always lovely talking to you. And so it, I always hate it when we have to cancel a recording for that reason. But also I felt like last week, last Sunday, which yeah, we, we were on a Sunday, was like the, the last window where we could talk about like WAP, the uh, Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B song before it kind of got mired in all of the kind of like conservative reactions to it. Like that was a golden window where you could just say, yeah, the song is great. (laughs) It's really (laughs) fun and really enjoyable. But now it's kind of like constantly people talking about, and and this is true of like any media now, I think particularly in the age of social media where, you know, stuff gets mean to death so quickly, but particularly in terms of, you know, people still being in many places in lockdown and quarantine and things like that. Not much else to do except, you know, complain about the lyrics in a rap song and make it seem like it's the downfall of western civilization as as some uh, politicians and political commentators have decided to do over the last week or so and russell brand oh yeah <laughs> that was I, I mean that wasn't the worst one the worst was hearing ben shapiro recite the lyrics just because that man's voice shouldn't say those words but (laughs) yeah i i mean i would like russell brand's voice not to say any words for the majority Mm. of the time really and it's it's, i mean it's pretty bad um considering you know his treatment of of women over the years yeah yeah him there's a lot of hypocrisy coming from him specifically about that if if anyone's going to kind of like take the song to task for you know kind of being very sexually explicit and talking about sex and sexual pleasures like probably not russell brand's the person to kind of like take up that banner really yeah and how he sort of like uh and excuse me for this pun rebranded himself as this kind mm. of hippie-ish i'm just thinking out the box and sort of this weird not really quite activism or just kind of like well it's sort of posturing it's sort of like well as someone with a philosophy degree, Ed, I think I'm allowed to sort of say it's a bit of a sophist, really. And again, it's mm. this kind of like, and I I find it quite unnerving if someone's just framing that in kind of a, <laughs> sort of framing it as if like, this is absolutely fine to talk about black women's sexuality and mm, they're actually still basically like, then they're not actually free. They're just as oppressed by like hip hop. And I'm like, oh my, I don't even know it. Like, why, why are we? why are we letting him still what but ben shapiro yes he should not say those say those words but it was also um this kind of accidental partridge moment one of the best (laughs) twitter accounts out there um (laughs) where he was talking about his wife saying that it was actually like a a medical condition and these women needing mop and buckets and Mm, i really want um megan the stallion and cardi b to do a reply called a (laughs) mab Ah, uh, yeah. God, that was really funny. That's that's always that's always great when 
particularly, it's maybe it's maybe not just conservatives, but you know, I, I tend to see it when conservatives do this. But like when their reply is just kind of like, "I've never pleasured a woman." <laughs> 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 where it's just kind of like like there was another one that was doing the the rounds where someone uh, uh, there was a tweet from someone being like you know in my experience women are never an enthusiastic uh, oh, participant yeah. in sex it's kind of like wow just there's for never has don't tweet been more appropriate it's like you can sit this out but you really don't need to kind of like put stuff out there that is just going to get you absolutely destroyed yeah it's also like do you have even one friend who's mm. like, that's not about, oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's not about the it's about you. And again, it's this thing of like, what women enjoy sex? How, how dare they? How can they? And it's like, what do you think you're doing then? Like, oh, it's just, oh, it's awful. But I think the song is great. <laughs> yeah, great song, great video. I just like, as soon as the gifs and clips that i'd like uh percolating online after it came out i was just kind of like man the colors in this are so good i really love the set design it feels so considered mm. in a way that i feel like a lot of music videos don't really try for these days yeah. um and yeah i don't really have strong thoughts on kylie jenner being in it like it's not a massive concern. For yeah, me. I don't really. Um, I don't know enough about it. I think there's some background or or something. I just. It's more just like how. Yes, that that self-made billionaire. <laughs> she's. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, she's just opening of an envelope. WAP video everywhere. Yeah, like, and I, it's just the ubiquity of it that that bothers me. It's not so much her as a person. Mm. It is a bit her as a person, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, like, Kardashians are like Pokemon. Past a certain generation, I don't really know anything about them. Like, <laughs> like the, ori- the original part, like, yeah, I know them, I know what they're about, but, like, once you start getting down to the second or third tier, I'm just kind of like, I don't really have the time to keep up with what's happening. you got to keep up with uh, them all, Ed. Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, it's just... It, it's also, like, so cool when something like this really does kind of like permeate the culture and penetrate the culture so much in the sense of like you know everyone talks about the death of the monoculture and everyone's all in there off in their own little silos so when something like this and like last year when our old town road became just like a massive massive success and like something that everyone had to have an opinion and a take on and just like everyone seemed to know uh <laughs> which when it was the NFL draft last year when I was watching it I just remember saying to someone like oh let's just count how many times Old Town Road is used in this because it was literally like every commercial break or every like um, uh, uh, package where they were like talking about prospective uh, draft picks they seemed to use it Uh, you know there's just something like really nice about having that kind of like oh this is a thing everyone is kind of like talking about and everyone knows about and everyone has a a thought about and some of those thoughts are terrible but it's still like always quite exciting to me as someone who likes to keep up with pop culture to see something that just everyone is like yes okay we are all talking about this now yeah i mean i sort of knew everything about it before i'd even listened to it Mm -hmm. yeah which is maybe a, a level of exposure that's kind of maybe too much like it's nice to go into things about having it like taped t- t- took today to death <laughs> took it took it and shook us I, I yeah still still loved it i didn't feel like you know pressured either way definitely in, in a point to be like i will i will defend <laughs> i may not like wap but i'll defend 
your right to have one. <laughs> Being someone with a P myself. <laughs> um, yeah, solidarity as ever. In other news that happened uh, while away, I think probably the biggest in terms of what we've been talking about recently about, you know, theatres maybe dying <laughs> or, or, or like you know like the theatrical experience as we know it is probably going to be changed quite considerably for uh, a long time and people are trying to kind of like figure out what to do with it all uh, one of the things that we've been talking about recently is you know movies moving from planned theatrical releases to debuting on video on demand and how last time in fact in the last episode we talked about how seemingly the largest one to date was Bill and Ted because that was one that, you know, because it was a fairly high-profile movie that people were excited for moving to having a simultaneous demand uh, release. But the one that I feel like was even magnitudes bigger was the news that Mulan is going to be debuting on Disney Plus in a weird way, which is, um, for people who don't know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard this by now, but basically the movie was meant to come out in... April, I think, or May. It was meant to be like a big summer release, oh or like God. a very, you know, our perpetual summer that the movie studios have constructed for us. And obviously, it got pushed back and was kind of undated on the calendar. And then now Disney have said, okay, if you subscribe to Disney Plus, you can pay thirty dollars to own it and like watch it as many times as you want. But everyone kind of being weirded out by that because obviously, like if you have Disney Plus you're already paying for it and this feeling like a very awkward solution to them to try and recoup their what presumably is going to be a pretty significant loss of profits from not being able to put the movie out in theatres and as we've talked about in the past you know how movie theatre money for studios is like a huge part of what they earn from showing a movie but also because it's kind of an advertisement for later sales of you know if a movie's a big hit then they can charge more when it goes to to television or whatever and obviously they see a lot of ancillary stuff from merchandise and home media and video on demand and stuff so cutting all of that out you know even charging $30 they'll probably still make considerably less money on Mulan as it is as a VOD than they would if they were able to put it out in theatres but it definitely feels like a real significant step in terms of you know Disney who are a major film company who you know make a huge amount and you know, last year famously dominated the top 10 movies in the US and, and worldwide being kind of like yeah this one's probably not gonna make it guys we're probably not gonna be able to put this one out in theaters and we're also mm, yeah like maybe slightly cynically we're not as invested in this one being in theaters as we are for something like a black widow which still hasn't been put back on the schedule and isn't being talked about for VOD because you know there's something much more profitable about putting out something like that that's part of a big franchise and is aimed at kind of like continuing the Avengers as a brand versus Mulan which is you know a big like presumably like standalone live action thing that they maybe don't feel that kind of connected to in terms of you know giving it that big theatrical window Mm. there is an amazing article on um, the enemy by Eamon Warman and Mm. I, I just think it just sums it up completely in terms of basically the pressure that's being put on Mulan Mm. and um, I think he just sums it up so perfectly here where he says a wide release property with a majority Asian cast and a woman in the director's chair is extremely rare 
And given the mm. likely strong box office and critical success that, based on early reactions, was surely coming its way, Mulan could have been a game changer. Instead, yeah. once Mulan comes out, the conversation about its merits and foibles will be competing with the circumstances surrounding its release. A film as rare as this should never be hampered with that burden. And you mm. know what? Like, that's entirely fair. And I think that's what's going to happen. And it's going to be so hard to have the conversations um, about Mulan that it would have had because I don't think that's going to happen to Tenet. Yeah, Tenet definitely feels like... I mean, they're, they're still talking about it going into theatres in like the handful of places that still have theatres open and they're still pushing for that, whereas there definitely feels like a, a real open double standard about it. It's like, well, it's a movie with an Asian cast and made by a woman. Can't put it in theatres. Got to, you know, kind of just shove it out onto VOD where, you know probably not that many people are going to pay the full $30. Most people will probably think, I'll wait until it just comes to this service that I already pay for anyway. Mm. Which is incredibly sad because uh, I was really excited to see Mulan based on the trailers, on the fact that I really liked the original movie, but also, you know, they seem to be doing different things with the Mulan myth, which obviously there's lots of different retellings of, so there was lots of potential for it to be new and interesting. And it looked, it genuinely looked like a movie that would benefit from being seen on a big screen. Like, it's very visually oh, lush. Sure. Yeah, visually lush and, like, epic. Like, the scale mm, of it. Yeah, so it, it kind of felt like it... Of these Disney remakes that we've had, of which I think really only Cinderella was the only one that I've really liked again because it had a real kind of like visual panache to it and there was kind of like a richness to the presentation that made it felt like oh this needed to be done as opposed to you know the slavish uh, remakes of The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast like this one kind of felt like oh this seems like something that I could be really exciting and, and yeah if it turned out to be great it would have been such a, a seismic thing in Hollywood if it had done really really well which I think it probably would have because you know, it's a big Disney movie that had a lot of hype behind it. And so now, yeah, like, like that quote from The Enemy said, it's going to be overshadowed by the fact that it's being kind of like shunted to the side. Uh, in other kind of like exhibitor news, AMC in the US are still planning to reopen at some point in the not too distant future and they announced this week that one of the ways they are going to try and kind of entice people back is when they open up they're going to have tickets for 15 cents with the uh, promotion being 2020 movies at 1920 prices which is gotta admit a great gimmick mm. really good tagline really solid idea but also one of those things i think yeah this it's still it's gonna look really embarrassing when like the top movie in the country like continues to be a movie that earned like ten thousand dollars but now it's because a bunch of people are going and spending no money <laughs> as opposed to recently where it's just like oh yeah it's just the handful of people who are going to see movies at drive-ins i feel as ever funnily enough very conflicted about this ed because yeah. whilst i want people to have access to art and in particular cinema which always used to be known as like the cheap night out and that has just crept up and up and up and up over the years um mm. i remember fondly when i could go to the odeon with my student card and see a film for three pounds mm, um yeah. and you know it's sliding scale and i'm in that weird bit where it's like what concessions do i really get other than like membership you know prince charles cinema does such an incredible lifetime 
membership deal. But then I'm also like, I still don't know how responsible it is to make it, to crash the prices so much and make it this affordable during a pandemic. And no AMC mm. are, are like um, doing everything in um, accordance with with new kind of COVID guidelines in terms of distancing and cleaning and things. And look, I'm also, as I think everyone should hopefully be well aware by now, I'm definitely not perfect. I've not been mm. perfect in this pandemic and I'm very confused about what's okay too, because, you know, I've had Rishi Sunak pick up the tab for several of my meals this month. <laughs> but you're right, it's a it's a weird one and it's sort of a nice gimmick, but I just something it's hard to articulate for me. There's just something in my gut where I'm like, I don't like this. Mm. I, and I think it's because I'm just such a proponent of pay what you can or pay what you want sliding scales anyway. Um, mm. But it's, I mean, like you say, it's a, it's a good gimmick. It's a handy tagline, but I'm like, it's a gimmick then, isn't it? It's not actually, it's not actually bringing audiences any closer to cinema. Mm-hmm. And it's not really so, you know, if you're, if you're going to be able to slash your prices like that, maybe try and do something in the long term. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it just feels really, I'm going to say it, Ed, it feels a bit reactionary to me. Mm. I, I think you're right in terms of like how expensive cinema going has gone. That's why as much as I personally would not decide to spend $30 on Mulan, especially not if I already paid, you know, $10 a month, whatever it is for Disney plus, if I had like, a family and like two kids that probably seems like a reasonable like deal because mm. you kind of think well the cost of going and paying for two full price and for kids and and also you know like for driving over maybe maybe having to pay for parking or you know having to pay for concessions which are already like overpriced so hugely like you know 30 dollars to have a movie and then you know be able to rewatch it a bunch of times probably works out pretty well but yeah in this case it, it it reminds me mainly because um jesse hawken who's a uh a film writer who's uh, very prolific on twitter every time someone posts something like this where like a company is like oh we're doing this big offer to try and entice people back he just posts a screenshot from the mr show devastator sketch uh about the uh roller coaster that people go on even though it's designed to kill people and people are always just like really excited to go on it even though part of it involves being underwater for three minutes and that's all that's all that i can think of whenever i see something like this. like really enticing people back you know like really you know kind of get people to fall in love with movies again it's just i just have this image of uh bob odenkirk and david cross kind of like screaming like yeah into a camera right before <laughs> one of them dies horribly and and that's that's like all i can really think of in that in that respect it's uh it's, it remains bob and david's world and we're just living in it right mm. <laughs> oh yeah absolutely Another piece of news that broke just yesterday, I think, or in the last couple of days, was the news that uh, Tig Notaro is going to replace Chris Delia in Zack Snyder's new movie, Army of the Dead, a, a zombie movie that he's making for uh, Netflix, which is kind of wild and interesting. Obviously, uh, Chris Delia in the news recently when a bunch of people came forward about him being uh, a predatory creep who, you know, like, very clearly, you know, sexually harassed lots of young women and used his position as a 
somewhat famous comedian, although not particularly famous, to uh, you know interact with young women, some some of whom I believe were underage. And as such, people you know don't really want to work with him, and so he's being replaced in this this movie that's due to come out sometime this year. And it's just it's it's really weird because this is the first time since uh, as you mentioned before, since all the money in the world where they replaced Kevin Spacey with uh, Christopher Plummer where something like this has really been tried where they've gone well we've got this major role in this movie played by someone who is objectively pretty terrible let's right. you know <laughs> just replace them with someone else uh, and it's really fascinating obviously we don't know how significant Chris Delia's role is you know like the, the big thing is when all the money in the world was obviously it's about the Getty family and you have to replace the guy playing Getty so who knows how kind of like big of a job it is but it's 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 very interesting to see that route being explored again especially when you know what two years ago like there wasn't any effort to do the same thing for oh Christ what's his name the guy from Silicon Valley who's who's dreadful TJ um, Miller that's right uh, when there was no effort to like replace TJ Miller from Ready Player One, I think was the movie that he was in, where like he had a small role that wasn't particularly significant or whatever, but you know, it came out after a lot of revelations about him came out, and everyone was like, "Oh no, probably shouldn't work with this guy," and there was there didn't seem to be any kind of consideration to do that. So it's kind of it's interesting to see that method being used again. I think I'm really interested to see how how it works yeah because I it immediately made me think of um all the money in the world and Kevin Spacey and Christopher Plummer but that was like hectic reshoots um mm. whereas this is like very close to release as well <laughs> so like... close to release <laughs> and then the sort of fallout of how solid Michelle Williams was in terms of being like I will I will oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or fucking Marky Mark was like no <laughs> anyway it's just it's it's just the line of like using CGI to include Tignataro in because I think as acting goes, that's I'm not too savvy on what part Delia would have played, but it sounds like hmm. everything's in the can. And I mean, are they just gonna? I I mean, this is because I'm terrible at Photoshop and all that kind of stuff. I'm just <laughs> is it always just any time that character speaks, we're just gonna be like be cutting away. Do you think, like, I heartily support this decision. I just love Tig Nataro and I want her to be hmm. in everything. Um, I think her her whole kind of comedic vibe is is great and and she's a very thoughtful, interesting person. Um, and it's kind of weird where it's just like, why did you not just give the part to Tig Nataro in the first place? That's vastly more interesting <laughs> hmm. than even even Chris Delia, even before you know um everything came out like and the fact is we now know in you he was playing himself and he was unconvincing at that who's who's <laughs> who's giving this man opportunities like honestly so i'm interested to see how it uh yeah how it how it comes together <laughs> i think the the one good thing about Oh, well, actually, the, the, the good thing about Chris Delia being uh, exposed as a creep is, you know, hopefully he won't work with people again or, or you know, he will he will try and make reparations or whatever. But I think it, it kind of gave me, I think, the best clip of someone realising that they've completely fucked themselves. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which, that footage, I think he's on the Howard Stern show maybe or something, some, like, radio show where there's a live feed. And 
two people off camera are talking about Snapchat and uh, they start talking about the fact that, you know, people can save images from it or they can, you know, obviously you can grab screenshots and things like that. And he clearly didn't realize this and he's trying to remain cool talking about it. But there's this kind of like knowing now what we know, like seeing his reaction to that and him kind of like realizing that in real time is it's immensely compelling viewing it entirely is and i think it's katie delaney um edited mm. it to include the um curb your enthusiasm music yeah. and a soft digital <laughs> zoom which just really i you know you didn't think you could uh top perfection but katie delaney did it she's a funny funny lady <laughs> and finally this week before we get on to our main topic uh there's a sad news that linda manns has passed away linda manns was an actress who uh, was was decidedly not prolific. She was only in sort of twelve movies and or TV projects over the course of her life. But uh, she was in some very significant ones. I think probably the one that is most famous is uh, Days of Heaven, where she's essentially the co-lead with Richard Gere, and she is the narrator of the whole thing. You know, she is the one who ultimately gives the movie its its structure because of the narration that she gave, and you know that that um, provides kind of a, a real core to that movie which you know famously was something of a, a mess for Terence Malick to edit together it took him years and years and years and, and she, her narration is kind of like key to finally allowing him to finish the movie but also, she also had a, a small role in uh, Philip Kaufman's The Wanderers which is a hugely underrated sort of teen movie teen gang movie from the late 70s which I'm a real big fan of. Uh, she's got. Uh, she was great in Out of the Blue, a uh, Dennis Hopper movie from the the early eighties. And then, sort of in in later years, you know, the last two roles she had was uh, in Gummo and The Game. So even though she didn't appear in too many things, I think she had quite a high batting average in terms of working oh, yeah. with some of the most significant directors of of her era, and just you know really knocking it out of the park each time really at least you know from from the work of hers that i've seen mm. and she just had the most incredible face mm, yeah like sort of really delicate but like her gaze was just like so soulful mm. yeah absolutely so rest in peace to to linda mounds so we'll go on to our main topic this week which is school in media in art in general i guess uh, this was inspired by the fact that i have been playing the game persona 5 a lot over the last uh, couple of weeks i'm not generally someone who plays or knows a huge amount about the persona games uh, i watched the giant bomb play through persona 4 uh, ages ago which was, was really fun and i played the dance games based on the third fourth and fifth games when they were cheap on playstation and kind of got really into them there which is kind of a weird way to get into a jrpg that takes like 140 hours to complete to be like oh yeah i just watched the characters dance to the music from the game but here we are and uh, i've really been enjoying it it's been a, like a nice one of many nice discoveries uh, of uh, over the last couple of months where i've been playing or experiencing art that i wouldn't usually go for just because now i'm like i've just got a lot of time <laughs> i'm in the house a lot i need to try and fill fill time and uh, a hundred and something hour video game suddenly feels like something i can tackle when uh, before i probably wouldn't have felt like i could fit it in but one of the things about it that is has been really kind of like particularly good is its depiction of school for people who don't know uh, persona 
five is yeah, it's the fifth game in this series, and in each one you play as a sort of teenager who comes to a, a new school, usually with some sort of dark past or secret in the background that's forced you to kind of come to this new place. And half the game is you going into kind of like fantasy worlds and fighting monsters and things like that and the other half of it is you going to school and like becoming friends with people and kind of getting a job and advancing your relationships with people as you go along and it's i'm not going to lie a large part of what i like about it is that during the bits where you're not fighting monsters you're just outside walking around on streets Mm. and it's kind of like oh this is nice walking through the center of the city and there being people around although a lot of people in the game do wear masks because you know it's a japanese game and that's obviously a much more common thing to see in japanese culture than it until recently was in the west and but but you know there's still this like real sense of hustle and bustle and you know there's this, this this nice nostalgic thing for six months ago that I get to experience uh, playing the game. But also you know playing it just made me really nostalgic for my own time at school, particularly high school and and sixth form and things like that. And how how well the game I think captures the sense of of being at school school being this like really central thing to your life it's where you go like most days it's where you spend a lot of your time where you meet friends and you know it kind of becomes this social thing that's such a huge part of your life for a really huge chunk of the early years of your life and how it you know shapes you i'm still friends with people i went to school with i still have like great memories of that time and that the 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 game kind of like really kind of like churned all of those those things up so i thought it'd be fun to talk about school in in cinema and you know tv and things like that and and examples of things that we feel like really got it right or you know just kind of how school is used in cinema because like one of the first things i realized in kind of trying to put together a list was school is like such a great setting because you can basically make pretty much any kind of movie at a school you know it can range from something like you know, Clueless, which is obviously you know kind of like a great teen comedy, to something like the Fa- the faculty, which is equally oh, about yeah. Yeah. being at school in the nineties, but is obviously a very different story, very different genre, very different tone. Or Brick would be another example. You know, these are all stories about you know American high schools all made within kind of like a ten year period, but they're all kind of like wildly different. So, so th- that's one of the things I think is is interesting because it's such a universal setting that so many different kinds of stories can be told there the faculty is one that really sticks with me because it was my cousin watched it on like his 15th birthday and I was about 10 and I would sneak in and watch little bits of it because I was staying with them around the time and it just like absolutely like shook shook me to my core I was so scared and then Mm. when I watched it again I was like this is not scary and it's hilarious and like campy and the cast are great and I think it's a cracking little horror film, but it's not like it's not that scary. <laughs> it's all just weird, weird mm. alien bits. But again, there's like a sort of parallel for you know puberty and not quite coming of age, like as you and I discussed a while back. But um, I think it's interesting how school can just be as a location, but also in a kind of paraphrase of. Um, they came together it's almost like new york city was a character in mm-hmm. in the in our, in our lives i think school is a character and because the people who are experiencing that that's where they are most of the time like and you know the majority of students that is their life it will be school and home 
and there won't be a huge amount you know their worlds will be quite small school is their world and it made me think when you suggested this to me ed uh because of persona 5 for some reason like life is strange is a school game to me as well Mm. even though i know there's so much in terms of like being like in san francisco but i think everything really happens like in those dorms and in those halls and you know everything with the teacher and was kind of important stuff but i think school is a character and it's a framework because you you can set pretty much anything at a school like you say and a lot of things will be in vaguely similar i mean i'm thinking mainly of um this at first three that like really came to me of recent years riverdale glee and mean girls mm. but then also i also thought my like my favorite school film um is election right yeah and i think what it manages to do is because what what is school as a framework right as a character like what's it there what's it function to do and so much of it is about preparing people for life or, or trying to say like oh you know school isn't everything but the thing i love about election is that it's just such a like a really like just just funny like a really funny satire of like society and, and basically mm. saying like you know it's not just school we can't we can't dismiss and say that the world is any different because these social structures are are ingrained and there's so much about like entitlement and like hypocrisy and secrecy and oh yeah i think election is probably my favorite favorite school movie but then also like as locations and characters but just physically how they look as well i mean i like so many um so many people are absolutely in love with uh, sex education on Netflix mm. and the school they managed to choose for it. It's amazing that they shot it all in Wales and they've managed to create this kind of like transatlantic vision on screen. It's like <laughs> the equivalent of like, wait, where are you from? Where is this? That seems like sort of aesthetically like an American high school, but not to the point where it clashes with the fact that they are still clearly british like no one's pretending to be american Mm. and i think it's such a imposing building like and quite starkly set across like the um the landscape but yeah so i think a school film like you say has so much versatility it can be about like what does school represent and i think it is different from a coming of age film because i would Mm -hmm. say like clueless for example is not a coming of age film but, but it is a school film Mm -hmm. yeah i think also in terms of like i think uh one of one of the things that i think is is really great about season four of the wire which is obviously very much about the education system in baltimore and you know is a kind of synecdoche key for education in america Mm. is it does that thing of you know drawing a parallel between it and the police and the docks and the criminal like, like all these things are institutions and they all have their own set rules and they own they all have their own set hierarchy and i think that that gets to what you were saying about how school is kind of like a microcosm for society like as we you go through school and you learn like the rules of how the school work is kind of meant to be preparing you for going out into the workplace or whatever or you know socializing with people and understanding how to you know not not just 
get an education and like know history and English and things like that but you know ultimately how to function in a in a human being in society and how effective it is at those sort of things is, you know varies from school to school and as um, you know as, as is happening in the UK at the moment with all the stuff about the uh, exams and things like that you know the efficacy of structuring a thing where uh, if you're not good at a bunch of tests at 16 your life is over yeah. or you are kind of like forced into a very narrow bracket of expectations is uh you know the efficacy of that as a way of structuring an education system of society uh, i think is 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 questionable uh and has always been questionable but and it, but as but as well you know that also kind of gets to the heart of the question of you know it is it as a society which is essentially you know there's a class system people might deny there's a class system but there is and if you're not born into it or you're not lucky enough to kind of vault your way out of your class system you know your expectations in life and your possibilities you know end up being quite quite narrowed and so unfortunately school is kind of a really useful lesson in that in that respect um but i I think in terms of the ways in which school as an institution is like really useful as, as as a setting but also as just kind of like an overarching framework for all these stories is you, you can really kind of like adjust the type of the institution to really like impact the genre because i think in something like uh, include this in kind of like comedies or in like john hughes movies from the 80s i think there is a certain benign quality to them as institutions they're like things where the story happens and maybe in the breakfast club you know like someone becomes the these people kind of become the victim of the institution because they're ending up having to you know be in detention on a weekend but for the most part it's just kind of a thing in the background if you transgress against it you know you'll have to do detention or something but for the most part it's just kind of like this thing that exists and you just kind of have to deal with whereas in something like a very different movie like the devil's backbone like i love that movie wonderful movie just like incredibly brilliant horror movie incredibly sad ghost story like all the actors are great in it it's got this wonderful tone to it but there like the institution is there is representing fascist spain and so much of what that movie is about is about the ways in which you know the government in in spain you know kind of like abused its people and how these children are the victims of their teachers and you know there the school is very much portrayed as like an antagonist you know as much if not more so than the actual supernatural elements of the movie you know like the the ways in which these structures uh, suppress and oppress the young boys who are in its care is right, really central to the story being told. I think it's also really interesting in terms of school not only being about, you know, society and preparing people for society, but also a really great way of looking at narratives about the individual versus the group. Mm. And I guess the main one I'm thinking of here is if right yes yeah <laughs> which is quite something um <laughs> and because even though that is pretty much like using sort of surreality to criticize or or basically just bring to the surface the uh, the surface sorry the absolute absurdity of the private school system mm. um and boarding boys schools but I think it also because of where it sits in terms of being made at that 
time into like the 60s and 70s it is also about like the individual being suppressed um Mm -hmm. but then so much of it is also about like personal development and ambition and that's where kind of like you know election and if just sit side by side to me in that kind of and that's what's always really satisfying when you're working you, you know that this filmmaker is really working so well when you can have that kind of mix of microcosm and macrocosm basically mm. i think also stuff where it kind of highlights the hypocrisy of of teachers and the idea of like and i love teachers i'm i'm taking too long to say this sentence but i mean in that more more kind of like highlighting the very human issue of like no one really knows what we're doing with life <laughs> yeah so how is, so how do these people know what to tell us and um i mean the example i had was bad education which is not you know the, the jack whitehall one not the other one or that yeah, one I, um, yeah i was gonna say it's, it's important <laughs> there's too many going around not the song yeah yeah not that not got, got it that one but then you ed i can't believe i managed to sort of like how how it had slipped from my brain but then you brought up teachers mm, um yeah. the channel four sitcom yeah. that ran for years and I absolutely loved and that, you know, so much of the humour on that just hinges on the fact that the teachers are just as kind of, and they're very cool. Like, I think the the thing about teachers is that yeah, all, all of the teachers are generally quite, like, self-respecting. And I found so many bits of teachers really moving as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it that was one that was pretty it's pretty much like the first thing i thought of actually which is weird in terms of your thinking of school you think oh it's gonna be a story about like kids and teens or whatever but like that was the one certainly for me that i think of the most in terms of my own experience at school because it was like one of the shows that my group of friends just absolutely adored and obsessed over like that was the thing it was a real like water cooler show where people would like get together the day afterwards and talk about it that and sex in the city um weirdly (laughs) any anything that kind of like i think anything that pointed to sex was like things like oh yeah like that's the thing that happens oh cool (laughs) good to know but also because it really kind of like nailed the feeling of what my school was like aesthetically it was very similar like the, yeah. the school i went to in rural leicestershire was like a big public school uh, uh sorry a, a state school public school in america state school in uh, in in england um which was kind of like a bunch of interconnected like steel brick and glass buildings not aesthetically pleasing in in any way really some of the uh places in particular were just like really really depressing i was thinking in terms of like what what is kind of like the microcosm like if i th- if i think about school like what is the image that comes to me and the exact image i can think of is the exact maths classroom i sat in <laughs> for the gcse maths which was like this like super gray very poorly lit it never got any natural sunlight it had like uh high like high windows that let like a tiny bit through it was just so depressing and i hated maths it was like one subject that i was just terrible at and i've never been happier uh, at an academic achievement than when i got a c in maths just so i knew i wouldn't have to do it at a level <laughs> just kind of like yes passed it i don't need to worry about this ever again i can add i can subtract it's great i can work out 10 percent on a tip i'll be all right like that so much of that that kind of like grayness which is something i also think of a lot with with teachers it was like a very plainly shot show but that's not necessarily as a criticism it was just kind of being like yeah these these people all kind of live in this 
kind of dull grey and work in this dull grey institution where they're kind of having to find their own kind of sense of fun from just like their interactions with people and that show like for me not merely because obviously I was watching it at the time and it was this this really important thing for me and my friends but just in how it nailed that perspective uh, that that aesthetic and perspective of like an English state school that is fine like mm-hmm. it's not bad it's not great it'll kind of get you where you need to go like you know you'll 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 end out of this not being too badly broken as a person <laughs> and that's kind of like how what i felt and teachers really nailed for sure that which just, is really funny as well oh I'm glad it helps as well so funny so so funny and introduced an entire generation to boy with the arab strap yeah <laughs> <laughs> what you were saying there in terms of like what reminded you of school i i went to private school i i was sent hmm. to private school not one but two um and my first private school was an all girls primary school and i really loved the worst witch like right yes the, oh wow the book series but also um there's been a couple of tv adaptations of it the most recent one that's been on bbc is delightful and also funny oh. enough features features teacher raquel cassidy hmm. she was so good she um is a teacher again but with a witch's hat it's amazing because that was <laughs> that was the closest thing that i could identify to my experience of being like in very close quarters with these with these girls and i think the the fact that private school is so archaic you know mm. that the, the, these books were written in well over decades but you know began a long time ago it was like well it feels kind of the same <laughs> and of course i mean maybe uh, speaking of um, magical <laughs> magical pupils i guess there is of course you know that other little school franchise you know the one written by the turf yeah yeah, I have, I have, I have those on my list as well. And thinking about how, I, th- I think one of the things about those books and later the films, which is a, a kind of, you know, whatever there are their other qualities. I think one of the things they illustrate about why schools in general are a really good setting. I think for stories, but particularly, you know, serialized stories like that ones that, that take place over several movies or a TV show that takes place over several years is there is such a natural rhythm to how those you know how a school year kind of unfolds you see the seasons change you see yeah, particularly less so in in British ones where really it's just like like you get Christmas and you get bank holidays and that's more or less it whereas in America it's like oh they've got homecoming they've got proms you know they have these big yeah. events that you can yeah. kind of like build build up to these kind of natural markers of the story and progress and things like that and I think that that was one of the things about reading the, the those books as a kid that kind of like really stuck with me is like you really did get a sense of the 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 changing the seasons you know like you know Harry has to be he has to stay at Hogwarts because he doesn't want to stay with his family so he has to kind of like you know he's at the school more or less alone (laughs) you know like at Christmas and all these sort of things like it had a real powerful little sense of the seasons changing and of a sense of of progression in a way that I think that certainly if you you look at tv shows about set at at schools like Glee I think is is a is a good one where obviously that one because you're you're telling a story each year takes place over the course of a school year you know they have certain things they have to hit certain holidays certain events in people's lives that they they end up hitting and having to tell stories about that you know kind of 
lends a really natural structure to the whole show, really. It's like, okay, they're all going to kind of go through each year. They're going to have these think targets they have to hit these tar- these exams. They've got nationals and regionals and whatever else. And then ultimately they, they graduate. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I, it feels like something that is very natural for, for TV shows as well in terms of a great setting so something like uh, one of my favourite TV shows of, of all time something like Friday Night Lights you know makes use of that really well where every every season is about a school year it's also about a football season you know at the school so that obviously lends a, a, a certain rhythm and structure to things and you know something that they're building towards which is are they going to win are they going to go on and to become champions and you know that that is yeah, that kind of provides a natural through line and you know end point for the story that you then can then kind of like uh, fill out with all of the relationship drama and you know all the other stuff that you want to tell with those characters. The thing is, Ed, I feel like I have to circle back round. Yes, I went to private school. I don't, I don't in any way approve of the private school system. Um, I'm basically, mm. uh, if, if everyone will permit me to use this analogy, I'm a Slytherin that wants to burn Hogwarts to the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I'm, it's the fact that it is so archaic, and I think it's it's weird, like, I think there's something quite telling culturally in that private school is not really seen on screen. Mm. And when it is, it, it's not positive. <laughs> like, thinking of if. Yeah. Um, but if being like so ahead of its time and I think, but it's quite wild seeing like how kind of, and I think particularly in that American tradition that you're talking about in terms of like these continued, you know, so all, all of these events, you know, that, that you were talking about like homecoming and prom and like these kind of debutante style markers and rites of passage, mm. but also how much more sort of grown up they seem to be, or at least trying to be grown up because it's like, oh, you're an adult now, even in, like, high school. And I get that a lot, again, like, returning to sex education, because, as I mentioned, I love it. I think what sex education does amazingly is in terms of keeping it, like, incredibly modern and up-to-date and nuanced and appreciating of these people as... These children as characters, not just children, right? Mm. Is, Is how all of them are on their bloody phones, like for the way for the way that they integrate texting and and messaging and stuff into the actual fabric of the of what you're seeing i think is so good mm, i think it's interesting thinking about stories that are set at schools now and how really if you want to tell a story that's you know kind of set at a contemporary school you kind of have to really grapple with all of that stuff in a way that you feel like in other genres or the stories that take place in other locations they try and avoid like you know the um the the common complaint you hear people talking about you know how it was so much easier to write like a detective story or a police procedural in like the 80s and 90s because you didn't have to contend with like oh someone probably would have filmed it on their phone or something or you know or this or or, you know a horror movie is like oh you have to write an explanation for like why someone has their phone but it's not working or they left it in the car or something whereas because teens are so technologically kind of like keyed in like having a mobile phone is now such a ubiquitous thing in a way that it wasn't even like it only really started becoming in like my last year or two of a level really like it was very much a thing like when i started gcse 
it was very much like a you know slightly well-to-do people would have a mobile phone because all people were very permissive parents i guess and then by like a level it's like oh yeah everyone's got a phone everyone's playing snake on it um and, and you know everyone's always texting each other and you know kind of like trying to arrange things that way and now you know with smartphones and apps and tiktok and everything like that it's just such a, a more kind of like multifaceted thing and there's so many points of connection on social media and on one level that's probably really daunting to like people who are in their like 30s and 40s are trying to like be like okay how do i transfer my experiences from you know a decade plus ago onto all of these like stories of people who are so much younger than me and have such a different like mindset i and i sometimes have this at work as well because like i work with people who are sort of mid-20s now so they're not that much younger than me Mm. but if it kind of comes to like people talking about what their like school experience was like it's kind of like wow that's like really different the idea that you kind of had an iphone when you were a teen whereas for me using the internet at school was like if your bus got in early you got to go to the sixth form area and you got to grab a computer early you could watch the latest happy tree friends (laughs) with your friends and just kind of like take turns take turns watching it and things like that it's like it's 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 obviously not analog in the traditional sense but it feels analog compared to the notion of like being able to like film a vine on your walk into school and have it be like shared amongst all of your friends by the time you know the bell rings or whatever you know it's so so wildly different but it also probably i think adds for a lot of opportunities for like different kinds of storytelling i think you really see that in a movie from a couple of years ago which i i really loved eighth grade which really is kind of grappling directly with that sort of stuff with that with the character of of kayla and you know her uh vlogs where she's like recording and uploading the stuff to her youtube channel and you know how much her digital life is kind of reflected in her real life and you know like the conflating of the two which is like i think has been true for, for a very long time like i remember um you know instant messenger and things like that you know kind of communicating with friends through that and you know choosing your screen name and like what quotes you wanted and how i had a line from the libertine a libertine song as mine for a while which my dad found very offensive (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, for people who who want to know it's it's from what a waster and it it features a very bad word Uh, (laughs) so so he maybe change it (laughs) but i i think what what that movie does really well is it does really kind of like draw out on one level like technology is very different now like people the idea of being able to record yourself and then instantly upload it to the internet and have people find it is something that you know would have been completely mind-blowing in like 2002 when i when i was at school when i was that sort of age but in like in other ways you know it kind of gets to the heart of i think that you know there are a lot of universal experiences that are just taking on new forms like there's always been rumor mongering there's always been bullying there's always been you know kind of like people making fun of people who are maybe socially awkward or don't quite fit in and you know outcasts and and those people have always had to try and find their place that certainly was like my experience a lot of the time because my parents moved a lot when i was a kid so like i was always having to make new friends i was always slightly out of place but i always like found like a group of people who like i could connect to and who end up you know becoming my 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 friends during that period and that i think that film like gets that stuff really well it's also to go back to persona 5 it's such a big part of that game because it's set in contemporary tokyo where like 
you're constantly receiving texts from friends asking you like what you want to do and you have to decide what you want to do with your time if you want to advance your different kind of like relationships with people or if you need to go and do a job and there's so much of it is about how your group the phantom thieves are trying to gain notoriety through like a fan site and part of the metrics in the game is how much people believe in what you're doing and that kind of shows up as a progress bar based on responses from people in the forums on the website and things like that and I think that's that's really interesting thing to see like you say as well in sex education how shows that really kind of like want to tell authentic stories about being young now have to grapple with like new technology in a way that I feel like stories about adults for the large part don't like they try and ignore it and push it off to the side although in the the sheer number of shows that I've had to make like zoom specials recently probably suggests that uh, they're probably catching up pretty quickly on that that front so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? A podcast called Decoder Ring, which I have really been enjoying as I'm trying to um, basically heal my attention span and uh, mm-hmm. pandemic brain. And they're really nice because I think it's quite rare to find podcasts that are about 25 minutes kind of level because I, I tend mm-hmm. to I seem to whenever I need to go anywhere at the moment I'm, I'm mainly walking and I, I seem to only be making like 30 minute trip journeys and I really like listening to podcasts where it's like I, I have a whole episode each way and I will at a pinch uh, listen to an hour or longer with a, <laughs> with a stop I just like having that contained anyway Dakota Ring kind of digs into little kind of cultural mysteries or um, trends and understanding them. Like there's a great episode about Chuck E. Cheese. You know, that that's the kind of level. It's not like, oh, spoopy or anything or like true crime, mm-hmm. but it's just these really interesting takes on on culture and not, not quite as kind of sort of critical in tone as something like Defunct Land maybe, um, mm-hmm. but they're just really enjoyable slices so decodering is my recommendation what about you ed uh i've got two one that i just thought about now because I, I it was like oh i should have mentioned that movie in the main bulk of the episode <laughs> but um a japanese movie from 2001 called all about lily chow chow uh which by shunji iwa which is a movie about uh, high school teens and it is i think one of the best early movies about trying to grapple with how the internet and social media impacts you know being at school because it's a movie that is very much about the impact of like rumors and the internet and forums and things as it was then kind of like bleeding into real life in a way that i think is really uh effective it's also you know kind of like a, a movie i think that was shot digitally as well so it's kind of got that really uh, hyper real feel to it i think a lot of those early like 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 chuck and buck you know where you're kind of like this isn't the right quality of image for what a movie should be so it feels like a snuff film <laughs> even though it should it actually isn't but that's a movie that i think about a lot when i think about you know art that you know depicts the the the, the notion of the the digital and the real world kind of coexisting but also bleeding into each other in a way that has only progressed more over the years so i, I highly recommend uh, people check that out it's a it's a really really great movie 
And I'm also going to recommend uh, a YouTube channel that I've been watching a few videos from this week uh, by uh, Jacob Geller. Um, the video of his that kind of first turned me on to his work was one called The Intimacy of Everyday Objects, which is about... Uh, you know, his his channel is largely about video games, but also about the aesthetics of video games, the art of video games, the politics of video games, and, you know, how they in, uh, inter inter intertwine. And this is a really great one about... Um, that's partly about, like, VR and, like, the notion of being able to interact with objects in a game and how they kind of create a sense of, like I said, as he says, a sense of intimacy. He also talks a lot about a game that I love, one of my favourite games of recent years, Florence, which is a very much a movie about, uh, very much a game about interacting with everyday things on your phone and kind of uh, experiencing a, a relationship in this story through just, like, the small minutiae of everyday life. But um, the video of his that I think I was the most impressed by was one called Who's Afraid of Modern Art, which is one that kind of draws together a lot of different threads you know like antipathy amongst certain members of the video game community against non-traditional ideas of video games like you know most obviously Gamergate and the response to things like uh, Depression Story and Gone Home and things like that and connects it to general hatred against modern art that you see in in, in the 80s and 90s in the US represented by Jesse Helm in Nazi Germany um, and just kind of like it's, it's a really fascinating video that kind of weaves together a lot of different themes and a lot of different stories all together talking about ultimately talking about how modern art and non-traditional forms of art you know are implicit kind of um, stabs against the status quo of saying like just the way that people have done things before it's not necessarily the right way letting like voices that have been disenfranchised tell their own new stories or explore art in their own ways is inherently um, a defiant act and it is a really really beautiful uh, video essay and really impactful and his work in general like everything I've seen of his has been like really great and really fascinating and really intelligently made but uh, those are the two videos of his that uh, I would recommend off, off the bat for people who want to check them out Who's Afraid of Modern Art and The Intimacy of Everyday Objects by Jacob Geller which are on YouTube and there'll be links in the description if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.